0: You don't have to do lame stuff like bookkeeping or like customer
1: service reports or HR. Welcome to The Syndicate, the podcast about the investors behind the overnight successes. It takes years, it takes money. On this show, we interview the top angel investors, venture capitalists, and startups to share what it really takes to succeed with startup investing. I'm your host, Matt Ward, and I'm a serial entrepreneur and angel investor. and I believe startups are the future, and angel investing is the best way to build real, true wealth. To find out more about us and join our Syndicate on AngelList, please visit thesyndicate.vc. But now, let's get on with the show. Hey guys, welcome back to The Syndicate, the show where we break down the world's best angel investors, venture capitalists, and startup founders to see what makes them tick, to get their advice, learn from their mistakes, and hopefully make the world a better, happier place. Or something like that. Today we've got somebody pretty pretty exciting. He's done quite a bit in all of these realms. Michael Girdley on the line, founder of and chairman of the San Antonio Angel Network. He runs the Geekdom Fund. You're an accelerator for Nike Plus, investor in Prospectify, Patient.io, Work Life. You've had a you've had a really interesting career where you've done a lot of different things. I wanted to get you on the program because typically when you see these experiences that are multifaceted, it means you've learned from both sides of the table and have a lot to give. So thanks for coming to the program, Michael. Yeah, thanks for having me. Michael or Mike? I'm usually Michael because I have a
0: fun partner that's named Mike. So we, we let him take Mike and I'm Michael. Oh, is there a fight? Uh, no, I've always been Michael except for like a one like year period in college where I wanted to be hip and then I gave up.
1: Is that the name that your mom would always yell at you? <laughs> Michael, get over here right now. <laughs> So the fun
0: thing is, it's not even actually really my name. My first name is actually John. So my parents didn't want to make me a junior, but they also wanted to name me Michael. So I have the same first name as my dad, but I go by my middle name.
1: So it's not even really my name. (laughs) Interesting. There's like a whole identity crisis there. Suddenly we're into something. So how does that work? Uh, It sucks, man, like (laughs) because
0: like uh, there would be people calling the house like when I was living at home and be like, can I talk to John? And it's like I'm 22 and I'm like, are they calling for me or they calling for my dad? Like, I have no idea. So that's the downside, you know, and and every day on the first day of school, you know, they would they would do roll and say, is John there? And yes, uh, but I go by Michael. And as a 12 year old, of course, that mortifies you. But then, as I've gotten older, the benefit now is I know if something comes addressed to John or somebody calls the house asking for John, I know that it is a uh, you know it's a, a boiler room call or somebody calling trying to sell me something because my friends will call and know what my name is. So yeah. as I've gotten older, it's getting more beneficial. As a as a twelve year old, it it definitely like was a social uh, social hindrance to have to deal deal with that.
1: That's very interesting. I've talked to a couple of guys, podcasters, investors, and they actually use all three names because other people had the first two names and had those domain names. (laughs) So when you see and people are searching, you need to show up number one in Google for your name or you're screwed. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, we, before we started, you
0: told me you're the shorts guy, which I think is a cool thing. And then you see, you see all these podcasters and people trying to create personalities around themselves. I saw a speaker where he decides to wear like these green horn rimmed glasses like all the time. And I was like, yeah, because you are not, you don't stand out physically at all. So I think it's cool that, that people realize they need to do something to, to stand out a bit. So
1: I don't know. I'm still looking for my thing. I haven't figured it out yet. Yeah, I'm a tall, hairy guy with shorts. I had a, I'm had. in Switzerland <laughs> now, and I was at a pitch fest. And one of the judges afterward was like, so it's an interesting outfit because they're all wearing suits and ties. And I was just thinking to myself, Jesus, this is like the most boring outfits ever. I could never yeah. handle that. <laughs> so it's a- how did you get into investing? What's your story? I mean, I think it was a natural gravity
0: for me. So I was, you know, I was CEO of a couple of different companies and really, you know, I found that I got the most joy out of businesses at their earliest stage. And for me, investing was an opportunity just to start to get involved in those in those companies. I find kind of about the time a business needs a CRM, um so it's usually around 12 to 15 employees. It's not as exciting for me. I'm I'm much more you know and excited when you're trying to figure everything out and everybody's doing seven different jobs and people are having to just figure things out as they go along. So investing for me really was, hey, I have a little bit of money. There's people that might be, you know, might be able to take my money
1: and do great things with it. And so kind of gravitated towards towards it at that route. So I was trying to explain this to someone. I'm I'm very ADD. Are you A D D? Uh not diagnosed. I don't like details. Like I'm well, <laughs> I'm not diag- I'm not diagnosed either, but just thinking about a lot of different things and that's why I personally am a huge fan of investing and advising cuz you can work on a lot of different products and a lot mm-hmm. of different projects with smart people and it's like a different hit every time. It's like startup junkie mode.
0: Yeah. Well, and then like you don't have to do lame stuff like bookkeeping or like customer service reports. Or HR. <laughs> you don't have to work on any of that stuff. You get to work on the fun part of the business. So, and if you like multitasking, which I think you, you, you sound like you're kind of in the Generation X bucket like I am, if you like that, and it, it creates a really cool, cool
1: opportunity to focus on and get highly efficient at what you're, what you're good at. So, I want to talk a little bit about CodeUp, helping coders, helping grow the next generation of developers and innovators. What was the business? What was the story? We started that in twenty twelve. So I founded that with a couple other couple
0: other gentlemen here. And, you know, we just pretty simple, you know, saw that a couple other cities, about the time there were six or seven, were doing these kind of coding boot camp models to get people um get people coding jobs. And um there was Code Fellows in Seattle, there was a company called Maker Square in Austin. And, uh, there's a company called Coder Camps in Houston. And at this, so this is 2012, 2013. And, you know, fast forward four years later, there's hundreds of coding boot camps, VC dollars went into the space and stuff like that. So, so basically that at its core is what Coda became. We just took some of the best that we saw from these other markets, whether it be Seattle or Dallas or Houston and copied the best of those here in San Antonio and, and tailored it for the market locally. And so it's been really successful. We're on like our twenty-first or twenty-second cohort now. Job placement rates in the high eighties, low nineties, depending upon the depending upon the time of year, and uh, still kind of doing the same thing with a lot of tweaks to to where we started from. And I I own that business with a couple other guys here, and uh, and we supervise it, and now have a professional management team running the thing, which is fantastic.
1: It's interesting. You see a lot of me too businesses, kind of like this. You saw there was success and you found out about it fast and started. Do you think the era of the franchise is dead just because the internet makes information flow faster? Is the era of the franchise dead? You know, I think I think
0: the limitation for franchises and why franchises are, are not going anywhere is because people in general need that help, right? Like, Like, I I don't know about your personality, but I have a like a problem with authority. So like signing up for a franchise would probably not be a good thing for me because, you know, first thing I'd be in there is like, you can't tell me what to do. Like Well, except for the fact when you get a franchise, you sign up for them to tell you what to do. And I know a lot of a lot of people that are in that entrepreneurial bucket, but they need the rails provided by a franchise. So, you know, I think I think the limitation for. The world to get post franchise is is because the people really need that. So, I mean, it's not something I've really dug in a lot to because, like, I'm just not really interested in buying a franchise. And most of the investments I make are not anywhere near franchise world. But that's my suspicion. And most of the founders I talk to,
1: they could probably use a franchise type environment. What uh, what type of investments are you looking at?
0: Uh, I almost exclusively invest in high growth tech. Companies, internet tech related. So I do that through two vehicles. One is I have a personal angel portfolio of about 12 or 15 companies right now, and then in the last two years, I put um, basically took all of that money and my partners, uh, all the money I was allocating each year to invest into angel into angel deals and put that all into our fund. And basically we took, we took what we were already investing, we put that into a fund and then we went and raised the rest of that money from other angels and high net worth and institutional folks. And now we run that fund. So, you know, we saw, and I saw, you know, in 2013, 2014, when we were going in and writing, you know, these relatively small checks as individuals, we would see the pricing power and the priority and the 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 advantages that f- other funds would get when when I was writing a 25k check another fund would come in and write a three or four hundred k check and I saw the deal that they were getting and I said you know what there's a problem with this so that's why I, that was the impetus for us to go raise the fund anyway long long winded story to say like I had this period of two to three years where I was angel investing pretty heavily and then I, I in in my mind decided that the better strategy was to go combine my money with other people's money and put it together for the fund that we have,
1: looking back, would you have invested in yourself as an investor? Oh heck, oh, heck yeah, yeah? <laughs> yeah no doubt
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean we've had for we were on our second fund, uh, our first fund has had three exits, we've returned a significant percentage of the first fund on paper that first fund is is more than returned um, a couple times, and then the second fund we just closed in May, so it's still really early, but I think we have a good eye for uh, being in the right deals uh, and also the hustle that you need to go get into them. You know, in this game, what really matters is getting into the right deals. And, and for us, like, we're going to go do the work to get into those. Some people do. Some people
1: don't. I think there was a misfire there. I meant, let's say, little old Mike Michael comes into your office 10, oh. 15 years ago. <laughs> is he getting a check from Big Mike? <sighs> I don't know. I I didn't
0: know a lot of stuff back then. Uh, but you know, the world's also changed, right? Like I think back when I was younger in 1999, 2000, that I would have been 24, 25 then, like the barrier to entry to start a startup there was so high. I mean, you had to you had to rent all this big office space, you had to get all this hardware. I mean, it it's a hundredth the cost that you needed to put up a a SaaS business comparatively. So you know, I think back then it, it still felt like the there wasn't a lot of democratization of founding companies like there is now because the barrier to entry was so high. You needed some adult supervision for some VC to want to give you $10 million just to get the one point of your your system out. Nowadays, like you can do that with 10 grand or less, um, depending upon, you know, what type of stuff you're building. So so I, I would I have given me money back then? Uh, it's tough. Like I, I didn't have any money. It was really, I was really expensive, but I don't know. I, I think I'm pretty smart. My mom likes me. I think, <laughs> I, think I do. <laughs> you still got that
1: exit check on the fridge? Yeah, mom takes care of me. Very good, very good. What's it like as you move out of your business? I see that you're still on the board of some of the companies that you've worked as CEO. I see that you're still involved, but at the same time, I imagine you personally had some type of exits from these companies. How's the dynamic change?
0: You know, I think there's, I think there are, I think there's a third, I think there's a third phase of career. And it's, I so I think careers can have three phases and I I feel like I've reached this like Zen moment of enlightenment. And so like, I think phase one or step one is you go work for other people and you learn a lot by doing that. So I did that, you know, when I was in Silicon Valley and then step two is you go be CEO of your own, your own company. Right. So basically you're an investor and a, and and an operator of that business and I did that right and I think you learn a lot by being a leader in those type of environments then I think the third phase and I think most people have trouble getting past phase 2 to phase 3 is where you just become an investor and you work on your businesses rather than in them you know and I'm in I'm in a I meet every month to go to a CEO peer group and you know it it's funny when I talk to some of those folks because they they look at me kind of like I'm an alien or like, how, how do you do that? Like, how do you manage a business without having, you know, how do you, how do you have responsibility without, without having to be in there every day and doing it yourself? And, you know, how do you know it's going to get done right if you don't, if you don't like control everything. And for me, like I've made this transition to be board member, coach, supporter, and just worry about one thing for each one of those businesses, which is, you know, do we have the right people in the right seats working on those businesses? So it's come pretty natural for me. Like I don't have the control gene like other, I think other people do, right? Where you have to control everything or you're, 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 it's not getting done right. And so I've, I feel pretty good about making this transition to this third phase. And I've been struggling with like, to those people that come to me and say, how do you do this? Like, it's hard because it seems easy, you know, it's like, yeah, you just let go and you trust people and then you check and measure them, right? Like, that's what you do. So I don't know if I winded away and answered your question or not, but that's like the transformation I've made. And then like what, you know, what my, what my current existence looks like. I don't work in businesses. I work on them. And it's, for me, it's like, awesome. <laughs>
1: it's like no, the best. That, that was perfect. <laughs> A quick sidebar. Where are you from originally? San Antonio. Really? There's no accent. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know why it's been this way since I was a kid. Oh, I watched, I watched a lot of TV. Okay. <laughs> TV so, kids.
0: Funny thing, funny thing though, it's only pockets of Dallas and Houston and Austin that have really bad accents. And then in San Antonio, like a lot of us just talk very normally. So we think, we think that some Dallas people and Houston people, because, you know, they're big markets and they're kind of highfalutin places, uh, have created affectations for themselves in order to sound a bit more,
1: you know, Texan. Well, that's how you sell. That's how you sell the stakes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, I want to jump back to that three part strategy <laughs> that you were talking about. Those three phases. Do you think someone yeah. has to go through all three phases to be successful at the next one? Can you skip phases? I think you could definitely skip phases if, if you want,
0: for sure. You know, I think, I think like if you look at venture capital and, and you think about it, there was this whole trend recently of people that got into VC because, you know, they were supposedly amazing operators, and and everybody said that because you're an amazing operator, that's going to turn you into an awesome VC. And except for a few unique like circumstances, like Mark Suster and guys like that, and Limkin, the majority of the the greats, like the best of VCs, were never really serious operators of anything. And like you look at Mike Moritz from Sequoia, like like, uh, Fred Wilson, like Brad Feld, like those are guys who have been incredibly successful VCs, but they weren't necessarily operators. And, and, but what those guys have done is like make their career about making a study of how startups are done and how venture is done and how LP relationships are done and all that stuff happens. Um, and I think the same thing can work with this idea of if you make a transition, say skipping from business, you know, employee to, to, to investor. So you go from phase one to phase three, or you just skipped all the way to phase three. If you're, if you're committed as an individual to do that self-development, right. And to go find coaches and mentors and read all the time about those things. Like, I think you can skip any step you really want to, you know, it is, it is easier a bit, you know, if you, if you end up doing all the steps and frankly, because most people get s- stuck on, on phase two, right. Which is the CEO of your own business. Yeah, sometimes it forces you you on that, right? Like they go they go that path anyway. So but yeah, I think if somebody makes a study of it, like no problem, right? Like you gotta read all the time, gotta talk to the right people, ask the right questions. Listen to the I, syndicate
1: podcast. Yeah, listen to this podcast, like super true. No, there there's some great podcasts out there. I am always cranking out podcasts, double speeding them, listening to them. You can learn a lot from some really smart people. That's the that's the secret about this podcast. I'm not supposed to tell you this, but the reason I started this is that I can steal smart people from you like you, steal your productive time, have you share your stories and strategies, and then learn from them and share them with everybody. yeah, everybody wins that's the that's the game plan what's uh what's your days look like how are How are you finding deals? How are you meeting with companies? what's it look like? you know right now
0: I'm actually way overwhelmed in terms of inbound, which I guess is a good problem and a bad problem. I think blogging daily or at least a couple times a week being active on social media like uh I'm seeing a ton of stuff you know my partners and I typically are seeing 8 to 10 deals a day uh, a piece so you know it's it's actually become a bigger problem which is how do I get more aggressive about filtering things so I don't get bogged down on a bunch of stuff but you know we do the usual suspect things for for as VCs you know we're super present on social media so we do content marketing uh just in terms of being out there and producing things. we go to events. So, you know, I'm going out to the Bay area on Thursday, Friday this week and go to different stuff and just, just smiling and being approachable and talking to people and asking them a lot of questions and trying to get them to like me. You know, I think that's most people forget that 90% of business is just actually being nice to other people and having them want to spend time with you and, and being good to them. So, you know, it, there's no secret sauce to what we're doing. You know, we just work really hard and, and, and do the things, you know, every successful VC does, I think.
1: 8 to 10 a day, is that deals you're seeing in the email, or is that founders you're talking to? Uh, I don't take all of those
0: meetings. So that's 8 to t- eight to, 10, eight to 10 between cold and referrals.
1: Okay, so then you're filtering through those, setting up meetings. What's your process look like from, hey, this is interesting, to, hey, we need a meeting?
0: So um, our investment strategy for our fund is actually makes it really easy to filter out a lot of stuff because most stuff is just not big enough for us to invest in. So, you know, whereas an angel can do well, you know, hoping for 3 to 5x returns in a few years on an individual deal, like that doesn't work for a fund like ours. So we're going to do 25 to 30 deals and 2 to 3 of those will return the vast majority of returns for the fund. So if we're looking for those 50 to 100x exits for us, we really have to go after really huge things, big, big tidal wave shifts and markets and stuff like that. So the majority of stuff we just turn away because it doesn't fit the way VC has to work, right? We have to go after these big whales. And so we're looking for ideas like, you know, one of the companies we just did is a, a, a earlier this year is a company called Chowbotics, which has since gone on to raise a series A and they're doing uh, uh, robots for food prep. So like if you own a restaurant or a chain of McDonald's and you'd like to make your workers go faster by having this um, a robot prepare your salads, they make a robot that does that. So, you know, that's kind of one of those big, like big shifts that's like happening in society where there's a combination of a societal change, right? Where you have $15 minimum wage, you have continued, you have a, a down pressure on immigration in terms of the type of people that work in kitchens. And then you have the the shift that's happening to make robotics much more accessible from a light robotics kind of human safe standpoint. So so you see, those are kind of the bigger ideas than, hey, we want to build like SaaS for like solar power plants, right? Like there's, they're kind of a different thing. So we end up being able to filter out a lot of stuff because they're just not quite huge enough. We have to ask ourselves, you know, is it totally possible that this founder, this team, this idea can get to, say, 100 or $200 million a year in revenue in the next three to five years if all the chips fall into place correctly. So a lot of stuff gets filtered out just because, frankly, it's just too small. And we can't make any money investing at those home run type terms for what I would consider just smaller or nice businesses. And that's kind of one of the more painful things is talking to these founders who just have a nice business, and I'm just like, look, I'm sorry, this is a fifteen million dollar year business. If everything works right for you, it's just too small for us to to invest in. We can't make money at those kind of terms.
1: A, I got to give a shout out to one of our portfolio companies, Nourish Technology. It's the size of a desk. You can get an automatic robotic coffee breakfast sandwich. It's the same type of deal. It's replacing Starbucks, all of that great yeah. stuff. Check them out, guys. But my yeah, question cool. for you, I hear this all the time, and I hear I hear VC say we need to aim for bigger size deals, and the question I have is why in God's name would this not apply to angel investors as well? In my opinion, everyone has to go for fifty, a hundred, a 1, thousand X type possible returns, because if you're shooting for anything smaller, ultimately the economics don't work out either way. Because if you have a if you have a certain risk reward ratio for percentages that are going to fail and going to return the investments, it's not a fund, but it's the same deal. Why why would that be any different?
0: Yeah, I think I think if you look at a lot of the way angel rounds get, get raised these days, a lot of those investors are seeing non-monetary benefit from investing, right? So, you know, one of our, one of our deals, 70% of their seed round was from industry people and it's from people that want to buy their product or, or are interested in, in participating from the other side, right? Of, of being able to have their existing uh, business benefit from this thing existing. So there's that aspect of it. There's also just the unfortunate reality that you're right. If angels really want to make money, they got to go down this path. You know, most angels are also just doing this not for monetary reasons, right? And I applaud you for like trying to create a re- returnable portfolio. But, you know, as I've gotten to know a lot of angels, they're doing it because they want to hang out with other angels. They have some They have some other business that they're trying to hustle by getting to know other wealthy people. They're trying to go to cool parties. They want to look cool on their resume. There's all kinds of stuff like that, that when, when we have to compete with that kind of money, uh, doesn't make sense, right? So I think the short answer is that a lot of these angels are seeing benefits that's not necessarily monetary. And since we're exclusively monetary in terms of how we're measuring stuff, you know, that's it. I mean, frankly, I wish more angels would say no to more of these deals. Part of, the pro- part of the reason why we have to adopt the strategy we do is because there's too many people doing too many stupid deals.
1: Dumb money is always there to float it up, speaking of which, ICOs. <laughs> sure. I bought one the other day. They're awesome. Oh, yeah? Which one?
0: Uh, I can't say it. It's an expletive, so that's why I bought it. <laughs> uh, okay, I see.
1: Very, very. An expletive. It's the one that, the one that starts with F. <laughs> I will let you guys use your imagination on that. It's, in my In my opinion, it's very much like the early internet days where things are going up. They're going yeah. to pop, and they'll, they'll go back up. But things are happening exponentially faster. So the internet bubble that took however many years to build up will pop much, much sooner with crypto. Is my is my big bet? Yes.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think what most people are forgetting with the with the crypto stuff is a lot of the money going into the ICOs and whatnot is uh, is derived from Bitcoin or ETH or, or Litecoin that has a cost basis of like. One cent, right? And now we have those things at $6,500 or $6,300, wherever it is today for Bitcoin. And those things are trying to find other places to diversify out of the money. And so it, it's important to remember that, you know, it's kind of like what happened with, in 99 2000 with the run up was, yeah, okay, we have, you know, we have such and such company, which has 5% of its total outstanding shares floating. And we, somebody invests $10 million in that and suddenly have a market cap of 14 billion. Well, It's not really 14 billion of, of recoverable money, right? It's not like, it's not like you could go sell the full value of $80 billion worth of Bitcoin right now, whatever the market cap is for Bitcoin, because on the way down, like the total, the total value, there'd be price pressure the whole way down. So, you know, a lot of this, a lot of the numbers that the press loves to attach to, oh, we raised $360 million or whatever. It's not like there's $360 million of fiat money that has gone into that. Because a lot of it is just Bitcoin that was mined at one cent or two cent or three bucks, uh, and is since you know much much higher. So I totally agree with you. It's like a very fragile thing that's going to crash at some point. And, and uh, anyway, I'll be there to buy some when it does.
1: The, well, the biggest, the most interesting thing about it is it's a Ponzi scheme where everyone wins because you get in early, you incentivize your friends to get in, and by getting your friends in, it makes your money more valuable, yeah. which is a Ponzi yeah. scheme. But then the same thing happens again and again and again and as it goes up it's valuable i'm not saying in my opinion cryptocurrencies are the future and tokens yeah. will replace stocks because they're just significantly more efficient but it's um it's an interesting dynamic that we're seeing develop
0: yeah oh uh, it's
1: it's so cool
0: <laughs> i'm yeah. so excited about it and you know i used to work for a cryptography company as my first first job out of school so it's fun to see like all those algorithms get used for something more interesting than you know, securing your book purchase on the internet. So it's, it's it's fun to watch. Is that a cover for an NSA background? No, I used to work for a company called RSA, which had the patent on the RSA algorithm, which is one of the core algorithms used in blockchain itself. So oh, very have, cool. Yeah, so it's, uh, it was the first kind of usable asymmetric cryptography algorithm. So basically, everybody could know your public key, but only you know your private key. So RS and A were the three guys that were MIT guys that discovered that back in the, the 80s. And then they um, they partnered up with a guy named Jim Bidzos, who basically realized that if we had this algorithm patented and we made it, it was the standard across the internet inside of SSL and digital certificates, we could all make a whole lot of money. And so that's what they did for about 20 years of that patent. So I worked for that company. It was oh, very a, it was a, cool. If, when Jim would drive up in his red Ferrari, it was an awesome lesson in business.
1: <laughs> make something incredible that everyone needs and then pass. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's pretty cool. Absolutely. I want to, I want to segue a little bit. So founding San Antonio angel network, talk to me about Texas startup scene and then what, what's happened since what, what got you into it?
0: Yeah. Well, you know, I think San Antonio is, you know, our, a second or third tier us city. I mean, there's a lot of people here, but GDP wise, it's, it's a laggard by any by any definition so for years you know san antonio has always been kind of the sleepy sleepy little little brother to houston and dallas right which were always the the, the big boys and so like for example southwest airlines was founded here uh, and had to move away to dallas to to make it work at&t was headquartered here for a lot of years um and then they moved away to to bigger pastures and moved to dallas to make that work as well So it's always been kind of a sleepy business environment, a lot of tourism, a lot of, a lot of military. But there's really been a renaissance, like I would say, in the past five to seven years of people trying to build more new economy and especially tech businesses here. And that's created a lot of excitement in the community. And we saw a gap about 18 months ago where there just wasn't enough, wasn't a vehicle for kind of these old economy people to invest in. Some of these new economy type business. They didn't understand how to do it. They'd never been educated. There wasn't like that vibrant angel scene like you see in some of the big, big markets. Um, the people here by and large, they haven't made their wealth from tech or tech IPOs. There's a few exceptions, but by and large, a lot of, there's a lot of, there's a lot of money here. It's a lot of oil money, a lot of real estate money, a lot of medical, a lot of military and government contractor type folks, but they didn't know how to get into tech and how to invest in high growth, high growth companies. So. You know, we decided last uh, last summer, so about that 18 month ago time frame, to try to put together an angel network here. We were the biggest city in the state of Texas without one. So basically, what I I went and found six or seven of you know my peers, and I said, hey, we need an angel network. By the way, Lubbock
1: and like Corpus Christi have them. By the way, those are like much smaller cities than us. <laughs> like like Amarillo, you know. San Antonio would probably be one of the largest in the US that didn't have one at that point then. I, I'm s I'm certain. Yeah. I did I didn't want to depress myself, so I never really
0: looked at that fact. But you know, it's it's always a good move if you want to get like Texans motivated, like compare them compare yourself to the other cities and be like, you know long View. bigger in texas <laughs> longview has one you know wichita falls like these cities like they are not global cities by any um, what um Wood, you know lubbock has one el paso has one like these cities that we you know we looked down upon so yes we got into a room and i said okay here's the deal like we need an angel network i don't think any of us want to go get government or university money to to run something like this the best way I think it can work is if we have a business model around it, which is paying members. And here's what we'll do. Also, I don't want to do all the work. So I said that to him as well. So I said, here's what I'll do. I'll loan the money to the Angel Network to get started. I'll go hire us an executive director to come in and like build up the membership and start to run this thing. And I just want you guys to commit to be like the first eight members and and refer other people into it. And then at some point, this whole thing will pay me back and I will have just loaned money to the angel network and it'll move on and you know, we'll all be on the board for this thing and make it happen. So so we um at that point I went out and just advertised for it, interviewed a bunch of people, got a referral for a guy that wanted to leave Rackspace at the time named Chris, and that's been it since then. We got started and I think they're they're the fa- the San Antonio Angel Network is the fastest growing angel network in the country. Uh we have, I think, close to ninety members right now. About a dozen corporate members, so it all worked out really well, and it's the kind of thing that you know I'm super proud of where like I didn't have to invest much money, I didn't have to invest in a ton of time. Everybody got behind it, and the thing is self sustaining right We're not going back every year asking for some government agency to give us money you know it's just it just works because the the members all pay dues and they get benefit out of it and and deals happen, and it's great I dues versus carry. Uh, because it's hard to pay your bills on carry. (laughs) So, you know, I think that it also in this environment, people understand dues and trying to explain to them carry when they don't know the difference between a convertible note and a, and an equity deal, or even how a lot of what a J curve is like, they don't know any of those things. Trying to explain that to them would also be a huge challenge. It's also the way most of these networks are done, at least here in Texas. They almost all charge dues in order to support themselves. So it tends to be around that 1800 to2 grand amount. So, so yeah, so that's how we ended up at that place.
1: What's your strategy for educating new newbie investors?:
0: uh, It is super hard, and I think, I think there are two challenges that every angel network has. One is member engagement and the second is education. And even the ones that I think do it really well. Are are not doing it as well as they think they are. So, you know, I would say that the education is still a work in progress. What we have actually found to be the most successful is before and after each pitch event, we have uh, a breakfast for investor for the for the members. And you know, I went to the one the other morning, and the the ED basically leads a roundtable discussion with ten or fifteen or twenty people where we actually talk about the deals and start to think about them and how they work and And what what are the risks? What questions do they want to ask at the pitch event and stuff like that? So that happens beforehand without the founders there, and then there's the pitch event, and then there's a breakfast after where actually everybody gets together and and talks about those deals. So, you know, I think the whole idea of do you have a three or an eight hour session where you like give them like venture investing one hundred and one like like people don't show up, they don't listen to that. Ain't, Ain't nobody got time for that. But if we actually give them the guide, you know, the guide in the push to like sit down and think and talk about these deals in a format with their peers. Like people really seem to like that. And I think that's a,
1: an innovation that we've come up with. that seems to work really well. And for any angel network coordinators, members, board members, etc., that are listening to this, the syndicate podcast is 100% free. You are totally licensed to <laughs> give out any of this in any way, shape or form that you desire to your members. To ideally help them boost returns because we have Michael Gurdley on the line, and Michael is a beast. Let's talk investing a little more, Mike. How do you avoid fear of missing out? Well, I think I think
0: first of all, like you you have to realize that you're gonna this is yeah, you know, it's like baseball, right? Like the very best hitters still struck out you know, 30% of the time and still got out 70% of the time. And and investing is like that as well. There's a lot of times I tell founders that you know, I, I look forward to visiting you on your island after you prove me wrong. Like you know, I'm, I'm really sorry I can't invest in your company, and and here's why, um, you know, and then I think fear missing out just has a lot of you know a lot of self discipline requirements, you know, like most flyover investors, we're we're pretty valuation sensitive, and it's just because of the dynamics of what happens when you're not in Silicon Valley, and we could talk about that if you want, but um, yeah. The uh, you know, so so really, you know, we we walk away from a lot of stuff, especially let's say you're an Austin startup and you're trying to charge Silicon Valley prices like we have to just not have a fear of missing out on those things because we got to go with what we believe in and take a stand around those things. So we don't really ever end up having a problem with it too much just because of, I think also the way we make decisions. So we're a consensus based fund. So everybody has to vote yes for a deal. Anybody can veto any deal before it gets done. So that, that also really helps with, with that concept for us.
1: Do you find any weaknesses with a consensus basis? It's slower
0: for sure, right? Like, you know, but I think, I think the slowness is really outweighed by what you get in terms of higher, a higher bar, right? And it seems like every deal we're doing is better, you know, better than the ones before it on average. So I think having that consensus really makes us, makes us do that. And then the second thing that is better about consensus is it really pushes through, you know, makes you really think through your thinking really well. Because for us, there's three other people that are going to question why you're thinking the way you're thinking. And so like that's, you know, I see people that are solo VCs. Like, I don't get it. I don't know.
1: I don't know how those people do it. Like, I just don't, I don't get it. I think it definitely makes it harder. But the one thing I would, I would counter with is typically when you look at investments that are great typically they're contrarian in some way and Mm -hmm. there's not a consensus even necessarily among a VC board, a VC team on Joe thinks it's going to be the best thing in the world. And Fred thinks this is absolute horse. Yeah. We'll try not to swear terribly on this podcast. Sometimes I do. It just pops out.
0: Yeah. So, okay. So here's, here's where I think I would push back on that. So I think for every single one of these investments that you do, you you have to distill it down to what is the fundamental bet that you're making right and and like that fundamental bet allows you as a partnership to say like okay we truly believe that you know here here's the bet right can can this particular startup produce the uh, the robots as fast as they think they can right can this particular you know do we think that 3 years from now this particular type of exoskeleton is going to be is going to be really hot in the investment community, right that like if what the partnerships allows you to do is distill it down into a, a bet and then everybody can understand that bet and we will often have different views about what that bet, how it's going to turn out. but the reality is that having a bigger group of people helps us figure out what that is, where with an individual sometimes you don't see it right because you get lost in the weeds of oh, I love this founder, oh, this is hot, Jim Jim, this other VC is doing it. So yeah, I I dig the contrarian aspect of it, but I think still in a consensus-based organization, you can be contrarian because you all understand what the contrarian bet that you're making is and that the partnership helps you do that. Whereas as an individual, like it's hard to see the forest for the trees.
1: I agree what I I what I was meant though is you can have four you can have four VC general partners and they're all in the board meeting. Right. One, one or two are really hot on the investment. One or two totally don't understand the investment. And by not having a consensus basis, I I just feel like a lot of times you can't get consensus on the great deals because the great deals, not that an individual investor would be better. It's much better to talk over things, to play things out from both sides. But then the the pulling the trigger, just a devil's advocate, does that make it harder? My experience is that all of our great
0: deals that have since turned out to do really well, go out and raise A's, B's and and go beyond or get acquired. It was instantaneous that everybody was like, yep, that's one we got to do because that's a big bet to take. And that's one we should, we should think through. So maybe, yeah. And, and unfortunately some of the, some of the ones that haven't turned out so well are ones that I, you know, maybe one partner felt really strong about and, you know, the other ones went along with it. So that it just, in terms of my limited sample size of 50 odd investments, that is what we see happens. You know, the the ones that turn out great, everybody's like, yeah, we got to do this right now. (laughs) So, so I don't, I don't know what that, we need about a thousand more deals, I think for that to turn in from anecdote to data. But right now it seems to be working
1: for us. The proof is in the pudding. I want to jump into the lightning round. How's that sound? Sure. Okay, so my first question for you, what's the first deal you did? Uh,
0: in tech, I did a company here in, in San Antonio that basically was putting all of the old vending machines online and bringing them up to modern standards. Uh, most people don't know this, but like 70% of the vending machines are more than 20 years old in the US. So cool, cool team, cool opportunity at the time, and, and they've gone on to do really well. Nice. What are you excited about today? What am I excited about today? You know, I think I'm just, I continue to be excited about the prospects for, for Texas in general. I mean, the gap between the funding that is here and the funding that is needed for the amount of innovation going on. Like it's just, it's, it's stark. You can go look at the numbers, like the California, New York, like kind of funding amounts mean that guys like us who are operating outside of those bubbles, can really do some cool stuff. And, and you're starting to see more and more VCs pop up in, in central Texas and, and, and the rest of Texas as well. So I'm, I'm extremely bullish on Texas.
1: Big state, good education, lots of people. What, uh, what's the most recent bet you've set made and why'd you say yes?
0: Uh, we, um, we did, let me, I'm trying to, th- I know which one I did. I'm trying to think about which one I was most recently talked about. Oh, okay.
1: Anything public, um, anything public.
0: Yeah, I've done two that are not public, so it's we're not we're not really gloryhound type people, so like I don't keep track of, of what's been announced or what hasn't. Uh, we're more interested in just trying to be the most helpful investor we can for the founders. So last week we announced that we led a round in a company called Spiro, um, which aims to solve the biggest problem for CRMs, which is sales reps don't put data into them. Um It's why a lot of Salesforce and other type of CRMs implementations fail. So. These guys are out of Boston. They use AI to auto-populate their CRM based on the activities of reps. So seen a lot of really good traction out of those guys and a pretty awesome team.
1: That's awesome. What yeah. uh, what are your two biggest wins to date, either personally or not including kids, personal stuff, etc.? Investments. Either personally or through the fund?
0: You know, there's been there's been two investments through the fund that have, have really really done super well. You know, it doesn't mean the other ones won't, but one is a company in Austin called Tenfold. So we were the first we were the first money to go into their seed round. So we're kind of their first believer. That's one of the ones where we bet on those guys. And uh I think we had we had an hour meeting and it was one of the ones where everybody was like, we gotta do this one right now. So we were the first ones to invest in that. Um and they've since grown up to 125 or 130 people. They got a series A from Andreessen and Horowitz, so it, Going from our money going in when they were two guys to uh, 115, 120 men and women is, is pretty exciting to watch that happen in in less than two years. And then we were the the first money and and first believers for a company called Chalbotics, based out of Redwood City, um, and that's a solo founder named Deepak. And they've since gone on to raise a, a series A and grow to about 30 people after getting money from Foundry and TechStars. So pretty cool one as well. So Excited about those two. We've had a few exits from the first one, but these two are the most recent kind of, you know, cheering moments for us to get excited about.
1: Nice. Now let's talk strikeouts, anti-portfolio. Who have you missed? Uh, yeah. Let
0: me think about who we've passed on. Maybe, maybe this is a sign of, of poor VCing, but low blood sugar and low coffee right now is having me, I'm having a hard time thinking about which ones I'm most, most disappointed in, or maybe it's just, uh, um it's uh Feeling bad, (laughs) feeling so bad about it that I don't remember those. But man, you know, we've passed on a lot of a lot of cool stuff, and you know, I I do feel good about our hit rate, though. Like we seem to get into the good stuff. So I didn't mean to just totally duck your question, but yeah, low blood sugar. I'm not. I'm not. One's not
1: coming to mind that I'm like, shucks. I wish I was in that one. Completely understand. You need way more coffee, my friend. (laughs) What what fields going to dominate the next ten years in exits and IPOs?
0: Uh you know, I think I think people are really. SaaS is is getting discounted by a lot of people, right? Especially B2B SaaS. So, you know, I think we're going to continue to see a lot of these really interesting SaaS companies come out that are leveraging some of the newer tech developments that are happening. So, I think, you know, blockchain is going to enable some pretty cool SaaS businesses to do neat stuff. Um AI obviously is another one we're we're an early investor in a company here that uses AI to basically monitor social media on your behalf and turn that into sales leads for businesses. And they've grown about 15 times revenue in the past four months. So um, I think, I think people are, are excited about things like robots and are, are sexified by Bitcoin and Ethereum and whatever. But the reality is like the economics of B2B SaaS are still incredibly difficult to beat once you get that flywheel going. So I think people are really selling that stuff short. And I think three to five years from now, you're going to see a lot more of those sassy kind of businesses, you know, going public, getting acquired, and or going into, going into PEXs type, type things.
1: That's awesome. Love the good stuff. Let's talk bad. What's overhyped besides ICOs?
0: <laughs> oh, no, you took the easy one. <laughs> um, you know, I, 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 I think, and I don't mean to poop on stuff, but I think people still continue to discount like how hard physics is you know, the, the amount of power required to overcome gravity or exceed the speed of sound, you know, there's, there's a whole group of people working on supersonic transport and, and different kind of, you know, airline options and stuff like that. I think that is
1: all. Are you way calling over-like. out Elon Musk? Cause he's, no, he that's... listens to this show. I know for a fact, he's one of <laughs> oh, our <laughs> subscribers guys. And if you subscribe now, Elon will send you a message. It'll be a video huh? message. He'll be with his cat and his puppy. And he'll talk to you guys about life.
0: Yeah. The the other one that I totally do not understand is the whole, like, uh, the co-working boom being treated like it's a big tech company. And I've heard the arguments for, like, we're going to become the LinkedIn of the real world and stuff like that. But, like, I, it's still just, like, Regis with fancier offices to some extent with with some of these companies. And when you have to have, you know, have a situation where you're having to... Get more space, hire more people, right? Like, to in order to grow your business, it's really hard to put venture like type valuations on that stuff. Not that they're not good businesses, but like, I just don't understand it. I've seen the economics of co working spaces, I've seen the economics of code schools, and like, it ain't like software, it ain't like robotics, it ain't like social networks, right? It's so I think, I think those things are going to have a real comeuppance in the next couple of years when people realize that, you know, the emperor doesn't have a lot of clothes.
1: The code, the code schools, I would say are, I would value more highly than the co-working spaces unless they find another way to monetize it. For instance, Hey, we've got your free accountant and you can use this to do your taxes and use a, like an affiliate type model because you're getting all of these freelancers coming through. Otherwise, it's, it's yeah. challenging. And yes, I agree. A little overhyped. Yeah.
0: Well, you know, my buddy, uh, was a asset manager for, for a big REIT, right? And so he would go in and manage these things and, you know, one of the things his mentors told him was like, be careful about renting too much of your buildings to to guys like Regis or WeWork or something along those lines. Because when the economy is great, like those guys are buying by <laughs> those guys are buying by the, you know, are buying are buying wholesale from you and selling at retail. And, um, you know, they have a real challenge when the economy turns down and suddenly Regis loses all of its members overnight and can't pay rent anymore. So, you know, it it you know, rising tide raises all boats right now. We'll see what happens.
1: I would say Regis is a little different because then you're dealing with the guys wearing the ugly suits, but it's it's slightly different. Give me, give me a productivity (laughs) hack. Last one.
0: Uh, man, I have in the past nine months, I have bought like every personal SaaS out there and I've, I wish I had done it um, sooner. So everything from Grammarly to full contact to follow up, like I have signed up to all of those and I'm just a huge fan of of doing that, I think. Um, so I think I'd recommend that. It's the best, like 150 bucks a month, like I, I, you can invest in all that stuff. It's cleaned up all full contact, cleaned up all my contacts, and went from 3,000 junky ones to 1,200 good ones. So huge fan of all that. Just don't be afraid to spend that nine or ten bucks a month to to get LastPass and and get stuff going.
1: LastPass is godly good. If you're not on LastPass right now, you're missing out. If you're not using Slack or something similar to manage your team, you're killing yourself. It's crazy. When you think about how much people will do to save five or 10 bucks a month, I do it. Everyone does it. But if you if you bu- buckle down and do it, it just uh, it just saves you time and money and energy and all of that good stuff that you need. Totally agree. So, Michael, I want to be respectful of your time. I know you're busy. I know you've got the next Uber in there right now. By the way, if you guys want to get in on this, make sure that you send an email over to Michael. He's got some great stuff happening. But um, what's one thing I haven't asked you about that I probably should have? You know, I think I think one thing that we're as an as an
0: angel community doing really poorly is there's this kind of middle category of businesses I just kind of call nice businesses. And we're seeing so many of these deals that are just like I talked about before, the fifteen million dollar a year business that is SaaS for, for solar farms, right? Like not venture investable, but also you can't make any money in that investing it at V C type Uber terms, right? You can't if they're pre-money, pre-revenue and all that kind of stuff, you can't put them at, you know, $4 million cap. So, so I would really encourage investors, especially in the angel stage, to start to look at other ways to fund these businesses that don't require uber-sized outcomes for you to do well. And there's a bunch of different ways to do that. There's there's JVs, preferred returns, like all that stuff is out there. So just don't try to shoehorn
1: everything into being the next Uber because there's it's it's not. <laughs> it's just not physically possible. Just watch Shark Tank. Kevin O'Leary always offers the debt. He always tries to screw him, but there's always some type of I'll invest in you, but you're gonna pay me back returns. There's there's a lot of ways that you can be successful. And guys, I know there's been a little bit of background noise in the episode. I want to apologize for that. Michael, an incredibly busy guy. Apparently, San Antonio might just be the next hotspot for Amazon. I see Jeff Bezos running laps. He looks like the Terminator right now. If you guys have seen the pictures, he's sweating. He's on the phone. He's a beast. No, uh, Michael's just got an awesome, incredibly happening office. He's got a lot of stuff going on. And usually, it's on my end where everything comes in. So, yeah, I just wanted to let you know. But thanks for coming in, Michael. Where's the best place for people to reach out, say hey? I'm on Twitter, so
0: Mgirdly and uh, also my blog, com.
1: And we'll have links and all of that great stuff in the show notes, guys. If you appreciated this episode, everything is completely free. All of the jokes that I've made up have been on the spot. I swear I didn't script these because they're way too lame for that. If you guys go to thesyndicate.vc slash iTunes, that's how you can subscribe. Leave a review. It makes me feel better. And you might just get that email we were talking about from Elon. Elon owes me a couple of favors since I... Solve the Hyperloop problem for him. So until next time, this has been an episode of The Syndicate, where we talk angel, VC, investing, startups, and with awesome guys like Michael. Thanks for coming, Michael. Cool. Thanks, Matt. Awesome. And we'll talk to you guys again soon. Peace. Thanks for listening to The Syndicate, the podcast where angel investors and VCs go off the cuff and discuss the ins and outs of the venture ecosystem. We're here to share the tips and tricks of the best in the business, because startups and tech make the pie bigger. To learn more about us and what we do, visit thesyndicate.vc. And to join our syndicate on AngelList, just go to join, and get access to some of the best startup deals. This has been another episode of The Syndicate. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you guys again next week.